Amen. Thank you, Will and the band. I can remember uh, our second house. When uh, we were married, we, uh, we found a house in our price range. Didn't have everything that we wanted it to have like most starter homes uh, do. It was a little bit of a fixer-upper, uh, you know, like roaches crawling through the, the floors and stuff. Um, it needed some love, uh, some TLC, and I'm not handy, but I knew some guys that were handy, and they helped us fix some of those things. Um, but when we got, when we decided we needed to move, we wanted to move a little closer uh, to my parents. Uh, we just the time was right to move out of our home. We, the housing market was beginning to turn, so we wanted to uh, be in a, our second home. And so we began to look at what was available. And we went into a house that we fell in love with, uh, absolutely fell in love with, like we were ready to put an offer. But what we didn't know is that there was literally an offer that was being accepted while we were looking at the home. Uh, we found out that the builder builds these homes. They're kind of a kit home, prefab homes. Uh, and he's like, hey, look, don't worry. You can build one right across the street, and uh, you can even decide some of the options. Now, it, I, we didn't build a home like some of y'all have built homes where you are customizing everything. Like, we could change the color of our walls, okay? Those were things that we could, uh, we could change. And uh, a couple of different features, a fireplace, and some of those other things that we were able to do. Um, but you know how, like, when you have a new home or a new car, like, you protect it so much. Like, you want everything perfect. Um, I had this thought as I was, we were driving, my wife and I went on a day date on Friday, and we were driving in a car that I had, I had the, the rearview mirror had fallen. I'm not going to say who did it. Um, I'm just not going to incriminate anybody. Um, <clears throat> but uh the rearview mirror was hanging by the cord because it had been busted off. Scratches all down the side. Some of our friends in our home group like make fun of our, our, our vehicle because of how many scratches. It had stains everywhere, like tears in the upholstery. And I remember having this thought, you know, at one point, we wanted to keep this vehicle completely perfect. <laughs> like at one point, this vehicle was new and spotless. And now you could make an entire McDonald's Happy Meal out of just the stuff that's in our seat cushions, right? And like, I just, I remember having that thought and we, we try to protect our homes and make we want them perfect. And any, any imperfection, man, can really fly all over us. So Cooper was three-ish, four-ish, um, when we found out we were having Hudson, he was three, right? Right, three, and then he turned four while, before we had him. So he was three, and we found out we were having Hudson. And let me tell you, Cooper jumped into big brother mode, man. Like, he was all about helping his mama. He'd bring his mama, like, glasses of water when she was feeling bad with morning sickness. And, like, he was just great. Uh, he's always been that way. Very attentive big brother. Like, he's just, he's a great kid. But one of the things that he wanted to do and liked to do is when the stomach is growing, they tell you to rub some lotion on your stomach so that you, you know, you minimize uh, the stretch marks and things like that. And so he would help his mom and while he was doing, he'd talk to little brother and it was just the sweetest thing in the world. Uh, and I came home one day and, Ma, and, and Becca said, hey, Alan, I need to show you something. We walk into our guest bedroom and there are little handprints 
all down. He pretty much made like a chair railing border around our room of his little handprints where he had rubbed that lotion and then on our mat finish walls, which again, dumb us, now y'all are going, well, yeah, that's what you get. And I'm going, we didn't know any better. Um, and so like all down the wall of our guest bedroom are these handprints. And at first y'all, I'm ticked because like, hey, this is our house that we are trying to make, keep perfect as long as we can. We're going to keep the illusion that our home is spick and span and perfect. And now here is an imperfection. The only way to fix this is to to paint the entire room, right? The only way to fix this, we've tried everything, trying to get it off, nothing will get it off. Now fast forward about six years, five years, and we're about to sell our home. We're about to move into the village. Can I tell you one of the hardest things to leave about that house were those little handprints? In fact, my wife asked me, and I'm not the sentimental type, okay? And just start with that. Uh, my wife asked me, can we cut out a portion of this drywall and like bring it into our new home and like frame it or something like that? And to which I responded, absolutely not. Right. But I'm thinking like people are walking into our house, like look, looking at our house to decide if they're going to buy it. And they are literally going, well, we're definitely going to have to paint this room. Right. The imperfection that, that would bother most people had become one of the cherished memories in our, our family. And so we, we, we compromised with she could take a picture of it. So she has a picture on her phone that she informed me this morning that she could not find. So she has a picture somewhere in the cloud, somewhere out there. Uh, there is a picture of these little handprints that my son had left. And it made me think about how God can use our imperfections he can redeem those and restore those into areas of great value for the kingdom of God. Today, in our Family Counts series, as we finish up today, we're going to talk about how our families can be restored. I mean, those things in our life that seem to us irreparable, that seem to devalue who we are, who our families are, the things that if people knew about, we would be ashamed, we'd be mortified if they knew how we acted in this situation or this circumstances or how we responded in this situation. Those are the very things that God can do. He can take our brokenness and make something beautiful out of it. This is the, one of the greatest ideas that led me to why I believe God has called us to Families Count Ministries. I was sitting across at 306, sitting across from Tim Chris, who came and, and spoke about foster and adoptive care a few, uh, in the summer. Uh, and I began to tell him, ask him how we could get involved. Like, what are ways that churches are getting involved in Lifeline Children Services? Like, how can we get involved. And he gives us a list of things. And I'm thinking, you know, like, you know, to provide some support groups and things like that. Like I'm, I'm thinking of all the different ways that we can get involved to help adoptive and, and foster care. But in the middle of that, he brings up this idea of family counts, families count ministries. And what I heard in that was that was different from all the others. Yes, we know there's an incredible mission field of those that are in adoptive and, and foster care. And we need to get the gospel to these kiddos and get them in Christian homes. Do you realize that the state, one of the first calls that they make when there is a kid that needs to be homeless to the Alabama Children's Home? Do, do you know that? That's something that the Southern Baptists support that 
thousands upon thousands of children uh, go and actually hear the gospel to Christian parents and have that care. And, and so, but he was beginning to talk to me and I, and I heard him mention families count. A ministry completely different than foster and adoptive care, but one that was focused on the birth families, the parents of those children that have been taken. And he began to tell me how they share the gospel with these people over the course of six weeks. And man, I'm going to tell you, I was bought in hook, line, and sinker. I mean, there's a lot of things he said. That was the thing that was like, like this is, this is what I wanted more information on. And, and guys, I'm going to be honest with you. A pastor friend of mine said that every pastor, if they're a visionary leader, needs to have at least one idea a year that scares them. I don't know that I subscribe to all of that. But what I will tell you is, if that's the case, this is the idea this year that scares the bejesus out of me. Okay, It scares me to death. Churches our size are not doing this ministry. It requires a lot of manpower. It requires a lot of buy-in. It requires uh, people that are bought into the vision of it. And so, I mean, I want you to continue to pray because God has given us a unique ability. I don't know why God called us to this. I don't know why when I was listening to him speak that God drew my heart. Well, I do know because it's gospel. It's ministry. It's mission. I don't know of another way that you can get a family who is hostile to the gospel inside the four walls of this building. I don't know how you do it. But because we're a six-week class, we offer a free meal and free transportation. They'll choose this class, though they know that it's faith-based, though they know they're getting Bible in it, they will choose this class. And there are people who are hostile to the gospel that will be in the four walls of this church that we get an opportunity to love on, to build relationship with, and hopefully, ultimately, get to see them transformed by the gospel. I don't know of another ministry that can do that as readily, and that is what God, I, that is why I truly believe that God has drawn us to that place. Because listen, if I believe God can use my brokenness, then I cannot allow myself to look at a situation like that some of these families are in and not believe that God can change them as well. God can span that gap because he, he has he has done so in me. The imperfections in my life that God has used to restore and redeem, and he has made us new. And by the way, he is on record for doing this, y'all. He is on record for restoring broken and hurting things. I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. We've got an interesting case study of a man that all of us know about. All of us know about Joseph. Joseph and his what? And his coat, his coat of many colors. Now, I was telling the, the class before, I, I don't know that there is a more iconic VBS or Sunday school material than Joseph and the coat of many colors. I mean, think about how many, as a kid, how many times you re-illustrated the coat of many colors, like vertical stripes, horizontal, diagonal, was a little chevron pattern. Like, uh, did we color them in our classes? Did we... Uh, glue strips of paper? Were we real creative and took strips of cloth and somehow bound it to, to, to something like that? But we, we, all of us, at some point in your church life, if you grew up in church, you made a coat of many colors, didn't you? See? And so I think about that. I'll, I'll never forget a lesson I heard on Joseph on a flannel graph. Anybody, anybody flannel graph? 
Raise your hands if you know what a flannel graph is. You've been around church for a while if you know what a flannel graph is. A flannel graph is a piece of fabric you may have seen and don't even know what it is. It is a board that has fabric wrapped around it and it's like a landscape. So like there's sometimes hills. In fact, sometimes they even make like you can put water in it. Like you can make a pond in the water or mountains or whatever, but you have this landscape and it's just green and blue and you can put characters on it. They're little cloth characters and you stick them on there and they stay. And you can, yeah, see, now y'all know, some of y'all knew, y'all just didn't know what it was called. A flannel graph, and I'll never forget, we had one piece of fabric that was, guess what? Joseph's coat of many colors, right? We only use it one time, but we use it so much, it warranted having that one piece of cloth, right? This little, poor little man on a flannel graph gets the coat of many colors, right? And we see that God begins to use a family, y'all, that is absolutely 100% dysfunctional. It is encouraging to me to know that God can use my family because God used Joseph's family. Let's read about it. A family's dysfunction in Genesis 37, beginning in verse 3. A lot, a lot of scripture today, so hang with me. We're painting a picture here. This is what it says. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. He was the son, he was the only son at this time, of Rachel, who he loved. Leah did not as much, right? Leah produced many children. He even had children uh, from his servants, right? Leah and Rachel's servants before he ever had a child from Rachel. Rachel was barren and prayed. Remember the, the Bible story of Rachel and her barrenness. And God gave her finally a son and he was the baby and he was the favorite. And Jacob didn't care who knew. Jacob, Israel, same guy. He didn't care who knew. He bought him a robe of many colors, made him a robe of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, sometimes I feel like my kids come home and they feel this way. Like, if you are breathing in the same room as your brother or sister, you will not be at peace, right? Like, there are just times, just get in separate ends of the house, right? And this is what he says, now, Joseph had a dream, Probably not the best timing, by the way. Joseph had a dream, and when he told of his brothers, they hated him even more. So more than just his father is deaf, he is the favorite, and he is trumpeting it on the mountaintop by buying him this super gaudy jacket, this coat, right? And now he has a dream. Well, this is what he dreams. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, wheat sheaves, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves, brothers, gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Doesn't really care so much that sheaves are walking around. That's kind of crazy. Right? But now they're bowing down to his sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Hated him even more. And to make matters worse, he dreamed another dream. Great. Great. Another dream. Can you imagine being drawn into the family meeting? Come on. Joseph has one, something he wants to share with us about his dreams again. Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. How many brothers do you think he had at this time? 
Guesses? 11. Sun and moon? Mom and dad? All of these, this cosmos, this small cosmos that has Joseph at its center. Joseph is the sun around their stars and planets and moons. And they are bowing down to him, right? And when he told this to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. In this passage, we see dysfunction at its finest. Right? We see Jacob or Israel. Remember, Jacob wrestled with God, got the name Israel because he wrestled with God, obviously was playing favorites. And he didn't care who knew it. What does God say about partiality? Not good. Does Joseph care? Does Jacob care? No. He is my favorite son because he came from my favorite wife. So the favoritism actually started long ago with the favorite wife. Just ask Leah how she feels about that. And now it's passed on to Joseph. Joseph is the favorite, and I don't care which of his brothers, no. Do we see hatred and jealousy? Can you imagine the shadow that these brothers, the baby of the family is the favorite. The baby of the family is casting a shadow on the oldest. Are you kidding me? Right? Hatred and jealousy. And when we talk about hatred and jealousy, we're not talking about, I don't like him very much. We're talking about, I'm ready to end his life. Jealousy and hatred. There's a lot of times that I wanted to bop my sister in the nose. There's not a lot of times I wanted to take her life, right? Like that's a whole nother level, but hatred and jealousy on the part of his brothers. And we don't even know, we don't know what Joseph's part in this was. Scholars, some scholars say that Joseph was doing what younger siblings do, twisting that knife. Like, hey, by the way, God gave me another dream. This time it's sun, moon, and stars. Y'all all bowing down to big old me, right? We don't know if he was turning the knife a little bit, just goading, or if he was legitimately sharing the revelation of God but Joseph probably wasn't innocent in this either. I mean, at every level, there is incredible dysfunction. And we would look at that family and go, well, that is definitely not the family that I'm going to choose to be the poster child for redemption in history. That's the kind of family that belongs in Canaan with the Canaanites or in Egypt with the Egyptians or in, with these pagan people. I'm not making this family the poster children of my entire plan to save the world. But what we see is that's exactly who God chooses. The nation of Israel would come ultimately from what would be the 13 sons. The 12 tribes of Israel would come from this dysfunctional family, that God would use them to ultimately bring about redemption for all of mankind, ultimately to the Messiah. All this is found in the family, hatred, favoritism, jealousy, right? Uh, um, provocation, all of this is found in a family which the Messiah has been promised, right? But there's a ripple effect, 
And sometimes there's an effect in our lives. We look at this and go, man, this family is super dysfunctional. Their dysfunction didn't, didn't accumulate overnight. I mean, this hatred stewed for a while. There were people that could have taken steps to change what was going on. There were right steps that could have been taken to counter this dysfunction, but this dysfunction had a ripple effect that ultimately led to the complete destruction of this family. This family, by man's standard, was completely destroyed. You don't believe me? Look at at Genesis 37, verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture. Now his brothers went to pasture, their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are you are not your brothers pasturing, pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So already little brothers getting out of work, right? Like he's not with the flock, he's not working, he's not grinding away like the rest of his brothers of the flock. He's out of place. Dad's like, all right, son. I'm going to send you to your brothers. Well, listen what happens in verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him, and they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him. Throw him into a pit, more than likely a pit full of water. Um, Then we will say uh, say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. This is pride motivated. Right? We will spite him. We, we, they, they spiting him for his dream. We will kill him. And then guess what? His dreams ain't coming true. We're not bowing down to him because he ain't here no more. So we'll just kill him and put an end to all of these dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands. Now I'm going to be honest with you. I would like, if somebody wants to rescue me from a similar situation, I would like you to take steps a little more uh, robust than Reuben takes, all right? So just for the record, if you're going to save me out of someone's hands, please go ahead and actually do it uh, and not sell me into slavery. But listen what it says. Then Reuben heard it. He rescued, rescued him out of his hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here, probably the pit without water, in the wilderness. But do not lay a hand on him. Don't drown the kid. Just throw him in this pit. His plan was that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. We're going to put the fear of God in him, right? We're going to let him just teach him his place. And then, you know, we'll say, okay, all is, you know, come on up. You know, don't do it again. That kind of stuff. So Joseph came to his brother's. They stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. Just another. It's the robe of many colors, y'all. That's why it's VBS lessons, right? And they took him and they threw him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And so rather than drowning, they were going to hold him there. Reuben's plan was to circle back after his brothers left, bring him back, and say, all right, guys, all, you know, we've had our fun. Now he's learned his lesson. Let's keep moving on. Right, but that's not what happens. Reuben leaves. We don't know why Reuben leaves, and nothing's really say that Reuben, why Reuben leaves. But he's not there anymore. By verse twenty-five, it says they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Look at verse twenty-eight. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up. They had an idea, right? Nobody profits if we kill the kid. But we can sell the kid and make some money on it. They saw the caravan, uh, or the Midianite traders pass by, and they drew Joseph up out and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in it, he tore his clothes. 
and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Right, he's concerned about how his father is gonna perceive him. Reuben's the oldest, right? You knew better. Why did you allow this to happen? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat. Listen to this, a deception. And dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors, again, many colors is there, and brought it to their father and said, this we have found, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Yeah, right, like anybody else is wearing a robe like that. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All of his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall die. I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. I will spend the remainder of my days mourning my son's loss. Thus, his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the progression of sin. While sin has its appeal in our lives for a moment, while it has an entertainment value, Satan's end game is not to entertain or even to inconvenience. Satan's plan for that sin that we allow in our lives, that we tolerate in our lives, that we even make provision for in our life is to destroy us. What was dysfunction became destruction. It completely exploded the fabric of this family. You've got brothers that are in, have so much rage, they are contemplating killing their brothers and they side for a compromise of selling him into slavery. This ain't good, y'all. This is a bad deal. We see the guilt of Reuben, the shame of Reuben. I could have done something, but I didn't. And Reuben sits in that shame for 20 plus years. More than that, we see the intense grief of a father mourning the loss of his favorite son. His entire life, he will live in mourning until he goes down to Sheol to his son. Now, we don't have, in, in Old Testament, remember, we don't have the robust theology of afterlife. There was a lot of question in that. And so someone's physical life was super important because they didn't know what the afterlife really looked like. Sheol was this undeterminate place, you know, and there was some idea, concept of blessing and cursing, but they didn't really know. And so he's like, I will mourn him the rest of my life. Can you imagine a son a father whose sons would be so proud and desire to escape punishment so much that they would allow their father the intense grief of losing a son for over 20 years and probably had every intention of doing it throughout his entire life. When we're talking about a destroyed family, we see the mourning of the father, we see the displacement and the slavery of a son. Literally, the son's not there anymore. The son is written off by members of the family as dead. Leah, Rachel, their sisters, like the only ones that knew were the brothers. 
The father, he is gone forever. He's displaced. He's sold into slavery. This is a terrible deal. This family has been destroyed. This passage proves that sin does not just affect the individual, but the whole. That in our homes, our family feel the weight of our individual sins. The great lie of the enemy is that what is going on in your life, nobody knows about, so it does not affect anyone else. It doesn't hurt anyone else because nobody else knows about it. Can I tell you, there could not be a more deceptive lie from the enemy. In the same way that we talked about last week, when we are not where we need to be in the body of Christ, we suffer when our families are not functioning, when individuals in our family are not where they need to be in Christ, our families suffer. It's why it's, it, dads crippled with sin and guilt can't lead their families to be missionaries, can't lead their family to share Christ, can't lead their family in discipleship. Mothers that are concerned with themselves and feeling inadequate and all of those things can't lead their families, can't support their husbands, can't set the tone in their homes. Kids who are concerned about things they hope mom and dad can't, don't find out about are too concerned in that to pursue a life of independence where we're following God's plan for our life. It's crippling. But nobody knows about it, so it isn't affecting anybody else. It's a lie. This lie, unbeknownst to their father, had profound ramifications in their family's dynamic. It was destroyed. Completely and totally off the rails. Let's look, though, at a family's deliverance. Here's what I'll tell you about your families. Kids, parents alike, we will all give an account individually for our sins. And it doesn't matter how I raise my children, at some point, Cooper, Hudson, and Maddie are going to have to make decisions of righteousness and lordship outside of their father's influence. I can't make them follow Jesus. I can't do it. You can't legislate morality. You can't legislate relationship. I can't do it. And listen, there are things that when they do it, there may be things that happen, consequences that happen in their life that may break my heart. But it may, it, I mean, it may not be my fault in the same way children that are placed in, in homes where, where families and parents are not taking their rightful place and making destructive decisions. It may not be their fault, but in our families, though it may not be our fault, it is our responsibility. It should matter to us. It should be a matter of prayer. It should be a matter of seeking the Lord and fasting and interceding. And it shouldn't just be written off as we've done all we can do. Because there's still breath in our lungs. No, it may not be your fault. It is your responsibility. Why? Because God has placed you in this family placed you strategically for kingdom purpose. But he doesn't leave us in our guilt and shame and failure. He doesn't do that. He's too good for that. Genesis chapter 45, we know what happens. The story kind of leaves Canaan and focuses on Joseph. Joseph is, is in Potiphar's house. Potiphar gives him command over all of his house, the head slave in his house. And him, you know Potiphar's wife who tries to seduce him. And what does Joseph say? He says, how can I do this to my God? And how how can I do this to Potiphar? By the way, that's the proper perspective. 
There's a lot of people that feel real bad about their sin once they're caught, once there's man's ramifications, once there's consequences in our physical life. The problem is we have consequences in our spiritual life sometimes far before we have consequences in our physical life. How can I do this to God? Then how can I do this to Potiphar and my master? Right? But she lies. Potiphar is deceived, or maybe he's not, but he has to do something to save face. So he sends him to prison. In prison, he finds favor with the guard. He is put in charge of taking at, watching over all the guards. He interprets two dreams. Eventually, when he interprets the, the uh, cupbearer's dream, when Pharaoh has a dream and the cupbearer is restored, he says, hey, there's this guy that told me this dream, and he interpreted it for me, and it came true. I'm here, right? It came true. Joseph comes before Pharaoh and he tells him about the seven fat cows that are devoured by seven emaciated puny cows, telling him that there'll be seven years of plenty and then there'll be seven years of famine and in the seven years of plenty, we better store up all that we can because in the seven years of famine, everybody is gonna be in trouble. And so that's exactly what he does. Joseph is put second in command. And two years into the famine, who comes knocking? Big brothers. Here they come to supply need. There is legit need. They will die in Canaan if they don't get food. And so there's a back and forth, but this, listen to Genesis chapter 45, verse 3. Now Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. He finally tells them, right, he, there's some deception, and we don't know if he's testing his brothers or we don't know if he's just playing mind games with his brothers. Again, we don't have explicit sin that Joseph does, but we do have some implied things that are going on. But eventually he reveals himself to his brothers. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer them for they were dismayed at his presence. You betcha. <laughs> I am Joseph. Oh, dear Lord. Like, can, you can you imagine the fear? So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Like they needed a reminder. Hey, yeah, you remember me, Joseph, you know, 20 years ago, sold me into slavery. Remember, remember that guy? Remember that? No, that's me, right? And he says, now do not be dismayed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for these two years, and yet there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve life. For you, a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Wow. Can you imagine how toxic of a birth family Joseph had? Can you imagine the betrayal that he felt. Can you imagine the pain at being sold into slavery and having his parents told that he was dead? Can you imagine the intense hurt? And then it remained that way, depending on how you read Genesis, we believe at least 20 years before he is face to face with his brothers again. Can you imagine how, I can imagine how I would respond. All right, fellas. Time to pay the piper. Yeah. 
You know, like I am, I am about to lay it down. But Joseph does something completely different. Rather than to condemn, rather than to punish, by the way, all things they're worthy of, they deserve, Joseph chose to forgive. Why? Why? Because he viewed his brothers with a heavenly perspective. Joseph chose God's plan. Somewhere in the mix, he, the light bulb went off. This is why I'm here. He chose God's plan. What does he say? His brothers sold him. They sold him out. But he doesn't look at it as his brothers sold him. He looks at it as God sent him. His brothers sold him out, but God sent him. And to look at it with a heavenly, a godly perspective, it wasn't my brothers that put me here. It was God and his sovereignty that allowed me to be here to preserve life. He bought into God's plan, not man's. That doesn't make sense and it's not fair, but it's God's plan. God chose, uh, Joseph chose God's purpose. His brothers deserved punishment, but he chose preservation. He chose to forgive them and to prolong their life. He could have put an end to every one of them right there. But he chose to forgive. Though being harmed, he did not harm in return. And lastly, Joseph chose God's perspective. He chose his perspective. You see, man sees what is temporary and what is right in front of you. These guys deserve this. God sees the eternal. Why did Joseph not do it? Rather than to vindicate himself, Joseph understood his plan in the history of redemption. In his forgiveness of his brothers, he preserved the line of the Messiah. Joseph's Thoughts were not on his pain and how he had been hurt. Joseph's thoughts were on the plan and the purposes of God. He had heard what great, great, great Papa Abraham had said. He had heard what great, great grandpa Isaac had said. He had heard what his father had said. He had heard what all of these people had said that there was going to be a promised Messiah through our reign, through our lineage, that the Messiah would come. And he, listen to what he says there, the, the, the exact wordage. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. He chose me to preserve you. It was not for Joseph that he forgave his brothers. It was for the continuance of the hope of the whole world. A remnant. There is a key theme in the Old Testament of God saving a remnant. Some of his judgments were so sweeping and so terrible, but God always saved a remnant. Why? Because one day, a man named Judah, one of Joseph's older brothers, would be told that the scepter would not depart from his hand until the king of peace came. And it would be prophesied to Judah and it would be handed down to David, one of his direct descendants, and ultimately it would come 
to Mary. It would come through the lineage of David. The Messiah would be born. It was the hope of Jesus, the hope of the great restorer that led Joseph to respond the way he did. He laid aside his need for revenge and selfishness and he looked to a hope that was beyond him. Can I just tell you, church, we have that same hope. In fact, it's the only hope. The only hope for your family is not for your kinfolk to act better. The hope of your family is not for that husband or that wife to actually do what they're supposed to do, for those kids to obey, for those kids to, to respond in honor and respect. That's not the hope for your family. The hope for your family is beyond those things. If we deal in the temporary, we're gonna be dismayed and we're gonna recognize our brokenness and we're gonna be in shame and defeat forever. But when we look to Jesus, he had faith in a Messiah that had not even come yet. We get to look to a Messiah that has been given, that is coming again. We have hope in Jesus. Not in any of us getting our act together. He is our hope. He's our hope for us individually. He's the hope for our families. And he's the hope for this church. He's the hope for these families that are going to be coming in broken and hurting. Whether they even know it or not. Are we serious about our investment. It's gonna require us laying aside a lot of biases and a lot of judgment. But if it wasn't for Jesus, so too would we. Here's what I wanna do. It's a very different way that I want us to respond in invitation. Hey, listen, if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want you to know you're the most important person in this room. And before you leave today, please find one of us as pastors and, and, and just have the conversation. I need a relationship with I need to surrender my life to Jesus. Man, he is our hope. Not in being better, but in being made new through him. That's what he offers. So if you don't have that relationship, please, please don't leave this place without doing business with God. Find one of us in the back. In our connect cards, there's a way for you to let us know any decision that you need to make today. You can let us know that. You can drop it in the offering bucket as we leave. But today in this invitation, I want to do something different. I want to call our church family to prayer. I want to call our church family to prayer, not just uh, for, for all involved, for everything that's going to happen in our families. There are things that we need to get right right now with our family members. And listen, you may be here and you may be alone. That's fine. You can find a friend or a buddy to pray with, uh, or you can just pray in the quietness of your own heart for your family as you intercede. But we got some prayer prompts five different things that we're going to pray for that's going to transition us from praying and talking and having conversation in our families about things that we need to get right to the fifth thing being praying about what God's going to do in other people's lives as they come to be a part of what we're going to be providing through Families Count. And everywhere, every step in between. And so these are going to play, the slides are going to play, Will's going to play quietly, and I want you to lead your family in prayer. 
pray together, lifting up your families, getting right with the Lord, taking that step of obedience. Listen, this altar is gonna be open. You're welcome to come here. You're welcome to move. You can walk to, if your family's somewhere else in the room, you can walk to them. Um, Whatever you wanna do, I want there to be complete freedom in this room, but I want us to seek the Lord together as we close today. May that be the time of our invitation, okay? So let's pray. I'll get up and close this and then we'll be, we'll be finished, okay? But let's go to the Lord in prayer, church.